thanks everyone for uh, coming out today. Um, I've got about maybe 45 minutes of material. Uh, I have my script here. If I stick closely to it, I should uh, manage to present everything I want to say in about that uh, amount of time. Uh, we haven't made an agreement about how to how we're going to deal with questions, but I guess we'll take them at the end. Is that the uh, yeah? That's uh, what we usually do. We normally field the questions. Okay. 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 Yeah, that's fine. But I do have quite a bit of material to get through. So if you have questions along the way, make sure you know, you know write them down so you don't forget. Right. Um, yeah, and, and, I, and if I, I will try to project my voice, but my partner tells me I mumble. So if I start mumbling, uh, just interrupt me and tell me to speak more clearly and using more, you know, air in the lungs. Um, so yeah, so the, the, the paper that I'm going to present uh, is uh, still about, even though I switched the title or changed and modified the title, the focus is still on teacher neutrality, teacher impartiality. Um, and it brings together some work I've been doing uh, on, I would say, three related themes over the last few years. One is teacher impartiality in relation to teaching and learning about controversial issues in the classroom. Second theme is teaching and learning about religion, uh, religious content, religious issues in uh, secular public schools. And thirdly, uh, teacher free speech uh, in the classroom. Now, I've been, uh, I've been looking at these uh, issues from the point of view of professional ethics and teaching and education law, because that's my, that's my area. Um, and uh, in terms of the premise of the paper, in the context, uh, in a context in which teachers are often urged to, uh, and well, even encouraged, uh, particularly in teacher education, to engage in social justice advocacy uh, in their professional role, uh, this work on these different themes has led me to wonder, uh, in particular, about how compatible this position is. So, so promoting, you know, requesting, even requiring teachers to engage in social justice advocacy in their professional role. Uh, how compatible it is with uh, the common expectation coming from uh, broader society, coming from jurisprudence for sure, and the teaching profession itself, not teacher education, but you know, once teachers are actually in schools, that teachers make uh, an effort to be neutral and impartial when they're talking about and, and, and teaching about controversial issues with their students. Um, so it's a brand new paper. Uh, I'm, so I'm particularly uh, uh, looking forward to hearing your feedback uh, on it. Um, the duty of impartiality is uh, a well-established norm uh, in teaching. That's to say when teachers uh, or when teaching or talking about controversial issues in class, uh, the teaching profession, parents, students, of the public, employers uh, generally expect teachers to uh, avoid promoting one side of an issue, especially their own per uh, personal view, and they're expected to present facts and arguments in a fair and balanced way. This uh, duty of impartiality is grounded in professional norms in teaching, codes of teacher ethics, uh, and in the jurisprudence, both Canadian and U.S. Um, research on teachers' perspectives on teaching about controversial uh, issues consistently shows that a strong uh, percentage, a uh, strong majority of teachers, about 75%, uh, believe that they're bound to a duty of impartiality. This has been documented in multiple research for over 20 years, including work by Diane Hess, Wayne Journal. Uh, there's, a <clears throat> there's a paper by uh, Olton and colleagues, British group from 2004, that surveyed teachers on these issues, and, and most recently, Dave Waddington from Concordia, Kevin Villa from McGill and I, we did a survey of, I'm going to talk about this a bit later, about 175 teachers in Canada and the U.S., and our findings were consistent with, uh, with this. 
Uh, the duty to impartiality is also a common feature of uh, Canadian codes of ethics. In a review that I did uh, with Marina Schwer a few years ago, uh, we sort of looked at the content of Canadian codes of ethics, and about one, uh, four out of 12 codes actually explicitly mentioned that teachers uh, should deal with uh, controversial political issues in a biased or impartial uh, way. And then finally, uh, the courts, uh, again, both Canadian and American, have repeatedly asserted that teacher neutrality is a defining characteristic of so-called reasonable and responsible exercise of teacher-free speech. And this, uh, this conclusion was one of the conclusions of, um, of a <clears throat> kind of a review of the jurisprudence uh, and secondary uh, writings on teacher uh, free speech in the classroom that I conducted again with Dave Waddington and Kevin McDonough uh, a few years ago. But nevertheless, and as I'm sure you're all aware, uh, the duty to neutrality uh, in teaching is a source of disagreement among teachers. Um, although most teachers prefer impartiality when dealing with uh, controversial issues, that's to say presenting facts and arguments in a fair and balanced way, teachers tend to be evenly split, in particular over the question of whether it's legitimate uh, for them to share their personal views about controversial issues with uh, students. Uh, and we also know that certain teachers feel very uncomfortable about expressing personal views uh, on contra controversial issues at work and promoting them uh, amongst their students. Um, but, well, there's, there's, I mean, to give you just a sense of, of, of the lay of the land about this issue, you know, there's, of course, the uh, archetype of the so-called woke or social justice warrior teacher. This is uh, Zevi Watso, who's uh, very active on TikTok in, in, uh, in Quebec. And he openly, you know, openly promotes various political causes, both online, he's explicit about his role as a, the fact that he's a teacher, I don't know more Black Lives Matter, uh, LGBTQ2 rights, and so on. Um, <clears throat> um, and there are also teachers who take a similar stance with, in the classroom, uh, as well as out of the classroom, with respect to alternative theories or causes uh, that are sometimes associated with the alt-right movement, so anti-PACS beliefs, the freedom convoy denouncing critical race theory, and so on. And then finally, who can forget the uh, pre-pandemic Friday uh, climate student uh, student climate protests, uh, which were a source of tension within uh, within some schools, at least in Quebec. I don't know how it was here, with some uh, teachers and school officials encouraging or even facilitating uh, student participation in the protests, while others felt that doing so overstepped uh, schools and teachers' role to uh, to show uh, neutrality with regard to perceived as a sensitive issue. Um, so uh, be they on the left or the right of the political spectrum or somewhere in between, the fact that some teachers are given to political uh, advocacy in the professional role is uh, no surprise, at least it's no surprise to me. It may be no surprise to you either if you talk to, if you work with, with future teachers or current teachers, uh, they will say, and it's confirmed again by, 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 by research, that one of the motivators, one of the things that motivates many people to choose teaching as a career uh, is um, because it affords them the opportunity to shape young people's outlooks, their values, the kinds of people they'll become in the future. So this, uh, you know, what's sometimes referred to as the values inculcation role uh, of teachers is, is an important source of meaning um, 
and motivation for, for many teachers. Um, yet at the same time, as mentioned, a strong majority of teachers, around 79%, as I mentioned, uh, say that they prefer to take an impartial stance with regard to controversial issues in school. Uh, as several studies have shown, teachers' preference for impartiality tends to be based on the following considerations. Um, so there's recognition of student rights, uh, student, uh, students' rights, sorry, to develop their own opinion, refer to that as uh, intellectual freedom, respect for intellectual freedom. They're also concerned about avoiding uh, undue influence, which is very commonly referred to amongst teachers using language of brainwashing and indoctrination, though as I'll return to this in a bit, but I kind of object to this label because I think it's just inaccurate. Um, <clears throat> and then thirdly, and in a completely different register, teachers are uh, you know, quite legitimately uh, afraid of disapproval, um, reprisals, um, the sanctions, uh, for, for dealing with controversial or for promoting controversial, a particular view on a controversial issue in schools, in classrooms. So it's, they're motivated by self-protection essentially to avoid, um, to avoid uh, taking a partial stance. Um, a theme that recurs in the social justice education and teacher education literature over the last couple of decades is that teachers need to be skeptical about the duty uh, of neutrality. This concern is based on the observation that certain issues that the subject of political debate, for example, systemic racism, same-sex marriage, or at least in Quebec, whether teachers should be allowed to wear religious symbols uh, at work, should not in fact be considered controversial when considered from the standpoint of liberal democratic values. Uh, teachers, in particular uh, public school teachers, and I'm sure you've all heard the argument a thousand times before, clearly have a mandate to endorse and inculcate among students uh, values like social justice, equality, human dignity, and rights. So from this perspective, it would seem that teachers have an obligation not to adopt a neutral stance with respect to certain standpoints uh, on contra controversial issues that fly in the face of political principles and values that inform and define the liberal democratic political order. The call then is for teachers to, quote, confront the cult of, of neutrality in teaching, uh, in Agostino Wilson's words, uh, one particularly, I think she in, the, in this article she articulates, it's, it's the clearest articulation I know of this, this argument in favor of uh, social justice advocacy in the classroom, and uh, in particular in teacher education, uh, and reject the professional norm that expects teachers uh, to maintain a neutral or impartial posture when dealing with controversial issues in class. And what confronting the culture of, culture of neutrality means, of course, is that teachers should engage in social, social justice advocacy in the classroom with respect to substantive viewpoints that, again, are clearly, that are clearly entailed by liberal democratic principles and values. <clears throat> so what I want to do in this paper is take a critical look at this tension. So the tension between a teacher's professional obligation on one hand to remain impartial when addressing controversial issues in class, and on the other hand, their duty to promote social justice and inculcate liberal democratic values among students in schools. Uh, specifically, I'll argue that when motivated by values inculcation concerns in the context of teaching and learning about controversial, controversial political issues, 
social justice advocacy on the part of a teacher is not at all obviously justifiable. The first thing I want to do uh, is put forward the most generous and accurate description that I can of the case in favor of engaging in social justice advocacy in the context of dealing with controversial issues in schools. Uh, uh, and to get it, uh, I know I've already said a lot about this, but more needs to be said in terms of making some clear distinctions, to make a distinction between some key concepts, okay, to get clear on what exactly is being advanced here. Distinctions between the various criteria, what a controversial issue is, um, uh, about the distinction between what difference between teacher neutrality and teacher impartiality. And then finally, uh, it's important to get clear on the various conceptions of the teacher's role when dealing with controversial issues that follow from these distinctions in order once again to really get clear before us okay what is being what is being recommended and then uh, after having done this work uh, i want to present uh, four reservations about engaging in social justice advocacy in the context of teaching and learning about controversial issues it's quite a it's quite a diverse set not necessarily they, they, I think, all work pretty much independently, um, but I think they're all highly relevant. First, there's the application problem, so the problem of inferring uh, substantive viewpoints from general political principles and values. There's what I call the cherry-picking problem, so the arbitrary elevation of specific liberal democratic values and the, the, the reducing the importance of other values that I think should be considered also liberal de democratic values. There's the professional risk problem that I've already referred to. Uh, social justice advocacy clearly makes teachers vulnerable at work. And then finally, this is the one I'm gonna spend the most time on, the student rights problems. Um, and I wanna raise the question and develop an answer to the question of whether social justice advocacy is compatible with students' right to charter right to freedom of conscience. And the third and final part of the paper, this is sort of the more positive part, uh, I want to advance a conception of impartial teaching about sensitive issues that allows, I think, teachers to work actively to promote social justice uh, and inculcate uh, liberal values among their students while at the same time meeting their obligation to respect students' charter right to freedom of conscience that I think um, they, that, 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 that um, that obligation generates an obligation to impartiality. Hey everyone, is my voice okay? <clears throat> so let's start on these uh, distinctions. Um, wait, hang on a sec. Um, right, so as I see it, there are at least, you know, there are two key aspects of the case for just social justice advocacy in this context. And maybe I'll stop repeating in the context of teaching about controversial issues because let's, let's, let's be clear that it's understood. Now, schools can and should engage in social justice advocacy in all kinds of ways, okay? There's, there's, there's no doubt about that. I'm not raising questions about that, okay? What we're talking about here, what I'm talking about here is a specific case, okay? So promoting social justice, okay, a particular standpoint, okay, that's thought to be consistent with the mission to promote social justice in schools, okay? In the context, this is underlined 50,000 times because it's really, really important, okay? In the context of teaching and talking about sensitive issues or controversial issues. So in other words, questions of conscience, okay? Questions of conscience. 
So I'll stop repeating that now because everyone understands it, I think, right? <clears throat> Um, so I'm not at all like attacking the idea that schools should be, you know, you know, promoters of social justice or work very hard to do that. No, I'm talking only about how teachers talk about and promote specific standpoints or could promote specific standpoints in the context of talking about teaching about controversial social issues in schools with their students. So there's two parts to this. There's a definitional aspect question here is which issue should be taught as controversial and which issues should not be. And then there's a prescriptive pedagogical aspect. So how should, uh, uh, so having established some criteria for saying, okay, these issues are controversial, these issues are not controversial, how should uh, controversial issues uh, be taught? So we're going to take these steps kind of roughly in turn. So let's start with uh, the definition or the definition, definitional criteria of controversial issue. I'm sorry, some of you might be very familiar with this stuff, um, uh, but if you're not, uh, um, I think you'll find it. I think you'll find it interesting. Um, so the idea that the teachers are justified in engaging in social justice advocacy uh, draws on what's referred to in the literature as the political criterion of controversial issues. I think it was Michael Hand in about a 2008 paper that kind of coined this term. I don't, I didn't, I haven't seen it labeled or identified as clearly this way in, in previous writings, but it comes up multiple times. It, it comes up again and again in, in writing since. Um, but in the philosophy, and this is part of a, of a long-standing debate in the philosophy of education literature um, over which issues, again, should be taught as open Okay, genuinely controversial, and which uh, topics should be taught as settled or not controversial. So this this open settled uh, distinction is, is the language that, that Diana Hess uses in her writings about <clears throat> teaching about controversial issues. She's, if you don't know her work, she's the probably best known and most prolific uh, writer uh, on this on this topic, and came out with this award winning book with Paula McAvoy, two thousand fifteen. Uh, on the topic, uh, the political classroom, I think is the title. So, highly recommended if you want tips for further reading here. Okay. <clears throat> um, so, in this literature, uh, commentators tend to return to four key criteria, each of each of which has well documented limitations. Um, and for many com many commentators, the political the political criteria is the most compelling of the four. I'm going to say a word about each of them in a second. Uh, because it doesn't seem uh, as vulnerable to the most obvious objections to the other three criteria. The other three criteria are, you know, sort of like if you think about them a little bit, eh, they have pretty significant problems. The first one is the behavioral criteria. So the idea here is that the question is, is there a de facto agreement among the population? If the answer is yes, teach it is controversial. If the answer is no, teach it is uncontroversial. Well, the obvious problem with this, this uh, criteria is that there, there just aren't any uncontroversial issues, if that's your criteria. Like, you can always find someone somewhere to disagree about something in a you know, pluralistic, you know, complex society like, like ours, okay? Um, and then, you know, then you can say, well, okay, like Dearden did in his 1981 paper. Um, let's say that the question here is, is there a de facto agreement among the experts, right? So if there's a de facto agreement amongst the, the, the experts, then we'll teach it as controversial. And if not, then we'll teach it as uncontroversial. 
Now, this, um, this, uh, this criteria works better, it seems to me, and according to other commentators, when you're talking about uh, empirical issues like climate change, you know, effectiveness, effects of vac vaccination. But, but of course, political controversies always involve a mix of, of empirical and normative considerations. And so, you know, and this is one of my, I mean, I don't know if you how well, some of you probably know really well, Michael Hand's work on, um, on this stuff. <clears throat> and he, you know, he, he, he in, his, in his writing, is, always talks about like, you know, a position that's the most rational, you know, like he, he, he did, I think he, he takes this kind of his cas de figure or like um, paradigmatic case, um, same-sex marriage, I think it was homosexuality. Homosexuality, homosexuality right? is one of the early ones. Yeah, and he, so he's always going on about like, well, you know, it's irrational to think that homosexuality is wrong. It's, you know, no rational person could think that homosexuality. I mean, I kind of, I kind of agree, okay, but I mean, just to, just to say that, like, it just seems too. It's like throwing out this idea of rationality that's going to solve all of the problems. I mean, where can you find experts to like agree on that kind of thing? I mean, they're just there. You can't be an expert in normative questions, really, right? Um, so it seems to me that that that's one of the key, probably the key weakness of the uh, epistemic criterion. <clears throat> now, in um, in in Hess's work, uh, including the book with Paula McAvoy, they 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 advance and and, and promote the, the so-called political authentic, uh, politically authentic, sorry, criteria. So the question here is, is the issue currently the object of active, active public debate? So is it settled or open? If the answer is yes, then we teach it as controversial. If the answer is no, then we teach it as uh, uncon uncontroversial. And uh, as an aside, um, oh, wait, 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 yeah. Um, so so uh, the objection here is that some issues are that are the object of active public debate and are settled from the point of view of liberty, um, let me start again. The objection is, okay, you've heard it before, kind of said it. Some people think that, you know, whether or not an issue is the subject of active political debate, you know, liberal democratic values like generate a substantive position. Okay, again, example people often come back to is same-sex marriage. It's just obvious that allowing, you know, same-sex couples, same-sex couples, the same rights as heterosexual gender couples. It just clearly follows from, you know, the liberal the, the, this liberal de democratic values uh, framework, um, which brings us right to the political criterion. Right. So, the question here is: Is there a position on the issue entailed by liberal democratic principles and values? Um, now, as an aside, uh, shout out to Lauren's 2014 paper. Titled its catchy title of uh, is that is it something uh, politics without brainwashing politics without brainwashing that's right that's right uh, well cited paper you put forward in what my reading correct me if I'm wrong here okay is an interesting and rather convincing convincing variant on the political criterion she uh, argues in the paper that educators are justified in engaging in advocacy about substantive views that as she puts it have legislative backing right. Um, the idea, broadly speaking, and again, according to my understanding, <clears throat> is that if a debate about an issue has been through a process of legitimate democratic del deliberation, and society collectively through these uh, processes has reached a conclusion about an issue through legislation, or I think you also want to include the possibility that certain conclusions follow from basic law like the Charter and Human Rights Code, <clears throat> then teachers are justified in teaching such issues as Uncontroversial. 
Um, be that as may, be that as it may, I will return to uh, this criteria and its potential limitations in a moment. <clears throat> <clears throat> so uh, turning now to the prescriptive, um, hang on a second here, yeah, yeah. The prescriptive pedagogical aspect of, the so of social justice advocacy when teaching about controversial issues, let's consider exactly what pedagogical approach uh, social justice advocacy involves here, okay? Here again, I look at some distinctions that recur in the philosophy of education literature can help us get our bearings. The main thing I want to do now is draw your attention to a useful distinction that Kelly makes between teacher neutrality and teacher impartiality. It recurs in Hesse McAvoy's book, also in Oldham's work, and other work. Um, but first, I want to deal with a quick, quick and easy terminological problem. Um, the problem is to find a substitute term for controversial issues. Okay, as you've already seen, we've sort of been stumbling over you know, a an uncontroversial, controversial issue. Like, what is that even, right? It's really hard to follow. Um, it also begs the question that we're interested in, like whether a topic is or should be considered to be controversial. So from now on, and for the sake of clarity and simplicity, I'm gonna borrow the custom from the French language literature on these matters and use exclusively the term sensitive issues. In French, you could use the term Thème sensible, so sensitive themes or sensitive issues, which I think is not may not be perfect, but at least it has the advantage of allowing one to avoid clumsy and hard to follow turns of phrases like teaching about uncontroversial controversial issues, <clears throat> regardless of whether one considers issues like critical race theory or climate change or changing the name of a Toronto university based on EDI considerations to be controversial. Um, I think that we can all agree that such topics are at least sensitive right, for many people, right? <clears throat> so back to the distinction here. So following uh, Kelly, let's say that neutrality relates to the issue of teacher disclosure or positioning with respect to a sensitive issue. A teacher who doesn't disclose to, the, to students their viewpoint on the issue that's being discussed is, in, is being neutral. Uh, a teacher who discloses their students uh, to their students, sorry, their viewpoint on a sensitive issue is being committed. So that's the term that uh, Kelly used. The distinction between neutral, committed. Note that the issue, or the, sorry, the, the use of neutrality here is stipulative, in the sense that it departs from the custom of treating neutral and impartial as essentially synonymous. Impartiality, on the other hand, and according to uh, Kelly's treatment relates to the issue of the pedagogical method the teacher uses to teach about or talk about a sensitive issue. Um, so teaching about a sensitive issue in a way that avoids favoring or promoting a particular viewpoint is impartial teaching uh, and doing the opposite. So teaching about a sensitive issue that you know, actively favors or promotes a particular viewpoint is partial teaching. So if we um, <clears throat> mix and match these distinctions, we get four distinct conceptions of the teacher's role in teaching about potentially controversial issues. So first of all, there is, I'm gonna maybe not go in the order on the slide, but I guess it's really mad, you'll be following no problem nevertheless. First of all, there's committed partiality. So the teacher uh, uh, discloses their own viewpoint on an issue 
and teaches about it in a way that favors or promotes their own viewpoint. Uh, this is uh, otherwise known as directed teaching is the term that Hand uses. Uh, also in uh, Warnick and Smith's 2014 paper about it, they, they adopt this term as well. So synonym for committed partiality is uh, directive teaching where the teacher you know, says what they think and leads students towards a particular conclusion. Uh, a second uh, concept of the teacher's role is neutral impartiality. Uh, here the teacher uh, does not disclose their own viewpoint uh, and they teach as well in a way that avoids favoring or promoting a particular view. Now, this is by far most teachers' preferred stance. Okay? They, for the concern, for reasons that I mentioned, they prefer to not disclose to their students what they think, and they prefer to adopt uh, an impartial, a pedagogical approach to teaching about it. And it's also, again, as I said, there's a little bit of vagueness around the, 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 the neutrality or the disclosure concern in the... Um, well, in fact, in the codes of ethics, at least, it's not it's not explicitly mentioned. But the, if there is a norm in teaching, it's the teachers coming from the from from the codes of ethics, is the teachers should um, teachers should not favor a particular viewpoint and be teaching partially in that sense. Um, fourth conception here is committed impartiality. So here, the teacher discloses their own viewpoint on the issue and teaches about it in a way that that avoids promoting or favoring a particular viewpoint. Um, so this is kind of a, you know, a interesting, subtle conception of things. And it's, it's, often, it's often favored by liberal-minded academics. Uh, in, in, uh, um, Kelly himself promotes this view in his, in his classic paper. And it's also the preferred stance by Mary Warnock in her classic 1975 paper. Uh, and, and, and Wayne Journal's recent work on impartiality and in teaching in the context of U.S. presidential campaigns, he also comes forward in in in, uh, in favor of this of this stance, and it's very compelling. Uh, it's very compelling, and essentially the idea is that um, a, a teacher who is able to say, "Well, look, this is what I think," um, and yet remain neutral, is sort of a, an excellent model of you know of, of rational deliberation for the students, and in fact, a model that very few students are likely ever to encounter anywhere else. In their lives, right? Because most people, when they talk about an issue, they say, "Well, this is what I think, and this is why I think." You know, you're wrong, right? But here, the teacher is saying, "Okay, look, this is what I think, but let, let, let's look at the different sides of the issues and the arguments." So they're, again, they're modeling sort of responsible, civic-mindedness, if you like, about about uh, uh, sensitive issues. And then finally, the um, most uh, unusual, I would say, uh, conception of the teacher's role here is neutral. Partiality. So the teacher does not disclose their own viewpoint, um, uh, but they teach about it in a way that favors or promotes uh, their own view. And for, when I first, you know, you know, was thinking about this, like no teacher would do that, right? I mean, it's so obviously deceptive. Um, but in fact, Hand, Michael Hand, I look back to the 2007 paper about homosexuality, and he actually promotes this, and he calls it steering. Right? He calls it steering. So he recommends that teachers don't say what they think, um, simply assume that one view is right, and then lead through a process of you know, questioning and evidence and arguments, lead the students towards um, the conclusion, the right conclusion, the rational conclusion um, on the matter, on the topic at hand. <clears throat> um, 
Right, so broadly speaking, of course, social justice advocacy in the context of teaching about sensitive issues involves partiality. Um, social justice advocacy may or may not involve committedness or positioning, but I think in practice we can agree that most of the time it does. Right. Um, okay, so defining partiality as teaching about a sensitive issue in a way that favors or promotes a particular viewpoint is vague. And that it doesn't specify the crucial question of how the viewpoint is favored or promoted. Uh, the terms uh, indoctrination and brainwashing, uh, which I'll take as synonymous for the purposes of this discussion, are bandied about a lot in education, especially in this context. <clears throat> but as I pointed out in previous uh, work, uh, indoctrination uh, has a specific meaning in the sense that, a, that certain criteria have to be met for any particular instance of instruction to be correctly considered indoctrination. Now, time constraints prevent me from going into this issue in, in, in detail, or into as much detail as I would like. So I'll restrict myself to commenting on just one uh, criteria. Um, indoctrination, and this is where I think there's a lot of misunderstanding, okay, is not a way to educate, right? But it's an instructional approach that's opposed to education. So more specifically, what distinguishes education from indoctrination, among other things, is that the former um, uh, prioritizes education, prioritizes educational or rational instructional methods, where the latter prioritizes coercive or non-rational instructive instructional methods. So following the classic but still serviceable definition um, developed by R.S. Peters, uh, let's consider educational instructional methods then to be methods that strive to produce, uh, to provide students, sorry, with accurate information about the world and to show uh, how students that the world is such and such, such a way by appealing to legitimate reasons. Okay, very broad general definition, I think quite uncontroversial. Um, uh, so one might say then that education that aims to produce knowledge, right, so beliefs about the world that are valid and held for the right reasons or justify true beliefs in the classic formulation, that's what education aims for, okay? among other things, but you know, minimally. Indoctrination, on the other hand, is content to produce dogma, so beliefs about the world that may or may not be true, um, and the reasons why one holds them as valid are really secondary to the importance of holding them. Right? So what's important for the teacher is just to make sure that the student believes such a thing, why or how they believe it doesn't matter. And that's one of the key things that distinguishes uh, education, of course, from indoctrination. So simply put, then, the focus of education is on facts, arguments, reasoning. Um, and the reason why the accusation that social justice advocacy in education is indoctrination, why it's so devastating, is because virtually everyone agrees that schools and liberal democratic societies are supposed to be educational institutions, right? They're not supposed to be institutions of indoctrination. And, but what's interesting to me, at least, about the charge that social justice advocacy in, uh, in, in, in education uh, amounts to indoctrination is that it challenges us to think about how a teacher might engage in social justice advocacy in an educational way. So I just want to say, like, exclude, like, indoctrination, because that doesn't count. No one wants that. No one wants that. Okay, so if you want to have the most, again, find the most generous interpretation of social justice advocacy, in the context of teaching and learning about sensitive issues, okay, as a form of education, as opposed to a form of indoctrination, there has to be 
right? There has to be some variety that meets these minimal criteria of educational. Um, and if it didn't, right, and if it didn't, then social justice advocacy would not have a legitimate place in schools at all, right? Um, so the question is, is it possible to teach partial, partially or engage in advocacy about sensitive issues in a way that can be considered educational in this broad sense? Um, in a paper that looks back over the discussion of this question in the philosophy of education literature by um, Gregory, 2014, he identifies three categories of teaching methods that he considers to be partial, so forms of advocacy, and educative. So first, there's implicit direct, uh, implicit directive teaching or steering, which I already mentioned. Uh, promote, discussed by hand, promoted by hand. The discussion is framed as an open inquiry where the teacher remains neutral or uncommitted. The teacher subtly guides students towards the correct view by providing reasons in favor of it and defends against, defends it against criticism from students or hypothetical objections, and criticizes alternatives using reasons and arguments. The second uh, educational form of advocacy is soft directive teaching. This was developed by, promoted, developed, described by Warnikin Smith in the 2014 paper. So here the teacher participates in class discussions as the proponent of the correct view. So they, they adopt a committed, uh, uh, committed uh, stance, um, but they don't explicitly encourage students to accept it. The, te the teacher gently guides students towards the correct view by trying to persuade them to accept the teacher's view um, by providing reasons, all the while conveying to students that the teacher's view is open to criticism, it's fallible, it's provisional. And again, there's a, there's a, there's a concern for you know, positive modeling of, of, of um, responsible citizenship in, in behind soft-directive uh, uh, teaching or suasion. Um, uh, the teacher uh, avoids defending their view against criticisms and objections from students, but focuses instead on the positive reasons and arguments in favor of the correct view. And then finally, the third uh, position, explicit directive uh, teaching. Here, the teacher participates in the class discussion as the proponent of the correct view. So in this way, it's identical to soft directive teaching or suasion, um, and explicit, uh, explicitly encourages students to accept. The teacher justifies the correct view by appealing to reasons and defends it against criticism from students, again, or hypothetical objections, and critical, uh, uh, criticizes alternative positions using reasons and arguments. Now, it seems to me, I think you'll agree with me, uh, that the social, that social justice advocacy, as it's usually understood, uh, fits with the third category of partial teaching methods. So the teacher takes a, takes a stand, openly and confidently portrays the stand they take as the right one, focuses on providing reasons why they think it's right, as opposed to um, presenting various possible um, uh, viewpoints uh, for and against, so not being partial, right? And not being impartial, I should say. Uh, and when and if the view is challenged by students, explains to students why they're wrong about it. <clears throat> okay, move to the next part of the paper. <clears throat> All right, so now that we have a clear sense of what social justice advocacy involves in terms of a pedagogical approach or method, I'd like us now to consider a set of conceptual, prudential, and legal problems that um, it 
apparently potentially faces, again, in the specific context of teaching and learning about sensitive issues in schools. Um, um, here again, the issues are the application problem, as I mentioned, the cherry picking problem, the professional risk problem, and the student rights problem. I'm going to take each of these in turn. Starting with the application problem. Um, so have you seen, as we've seen, proponents of social justice advocacy, um, they leverage the political criteria to argue that some sensitive issues should be taught about partially, right? Um, note, uh, and this is important to take into account here, <clears throat> they're not arguing for a complete rejection of impartiality or neutrality, contrary to the language that's sometimes used. The idea is rather that you know, this may be hypothetically, there are some issues out there that we could consider to be genuinely uh, controversial, or you know, but that there are you know, the issues that we can also identify you know, positions with respect to issues that again follow, uh, follow rather unproblematically from the liberal democratic uh, framework of, uh, of rights and freedoms. And, and those specific standpoints are the ones that can, not only can, but should be taught about partially uh, in schools. Um, <clears throat> now, it seems to me that this claim uh, that the basic liberal democratic uh, values framework entails specific substantive viewpoints or a specific substantive viewpoint on any particular sensitive issues suffers from an application problem in the sense that it uh, supposes a rather naive view, I think, uh, of the role that broad political principles play in informing consensual viewpoints on um, social and political, political issues. Indeed, the strong, you know, sorry, the long history and continuing struggle of the liberal democratic societies to arrive at, at social consensus through law and policy primarily on all manner of sensitive issues illustrates, you know, illustrates lucidly how persistent intractable differences can remain even when all parties agree on the basic framework of rights and freedoms. And this is because I think the answer is not that hard to identify. And this is because such differences uh, rarely have ever relate back to disagreements about the basic value framework of rights and freedoms, but rather commitments in relation to at least three other issues. Um, one is how to balance salient rights and freedoms, right? Which one's prioritized, which one's deprioritized. Second, second-order normative commitments and the importance assigned to them. Thirdly, empirical force, empirical beliefs, and their perceived relevance. So to illustrate with an admittedly you know, rather tired example, take the ongoing debates about the right to abortion. So the pro-life camp can be seen as being defined by the prioritization, prioritization rather of the right to life or the right to personal uh, autonomy. So this is a balancing issue. Uh, the assertion that a fetus is a human being uh, with rights from the order of conception, so this is a normative commitment or claim, and the belief that a fetus can feel pain from the first month of gestation. This is sort of debates around in the last few years. This, this empirical claims have, have attracted more attention and more discussion. Um, whereas the pro-choice camp can be seen defined uh, can be seen as being defined by the prioritization of the right to privacy or personal autonomy over the right to life, so a different take on the balancing issue. Uh, assertion that a fetus is not a human being with rights until at least the second trimester of pregnancy, so clear, clearly a normative uh, commitment. And finally, a belief that a, empirical belief that a fetus can't feel pain until the 24th week of gestation. Okay. 
Now, what this example is supposed to show is that mere consistency with the liberal uh, democratic normative framework seems to be a, a, a terrible criterion for determining whether substantive viewpoints should be taught partially, because a wide range of substantive viewpoints on any given issue are compatible with this, with this framework. Um, so hence, the application of the political criteria, contrary to what proponents often claim, doesn't yield one substantive viewpoint that should be taught partially, but in fact justifies partial teaching about a whole range of possible contradictory viewpoints. And these could include uh, you know, anti-vax uh, viewpoints that prioritize personal, personal autonomy, that's a good liberal democratic value, right? Ban on uh, medically assisted suicide, prioritization of the right to life, you know? uh, opposition to affirmative action policies, you know, and what, whatever happened to equality, right? I mean, that's, if there's a, if there's a liberal democratic value, equality is it, right? Um, now, maybe this is what you're thinking, and of course one could object here that this may be so, but not all substantive viewpoints are equally reasonable. They might be based, based on false empirical beliefs, beliefs, dubious prioritizations, false inferences, or object, objectionable normative commitments. Um, now, I don't, I don't deny this at all. In fact, it's undoubtedly, undoubtedly the case. But this is not, you know, this is the key point here. Okay? This is not what proponents of social justice advocacy are saying. They are saying that certain substantive viewpoints follow from the liberal democratic normative framework. This is all I'm denying. Okay? My point is simply that one can't get from the basic principles of, uh, of, uh, of liberal democracy from this framework two substantive positions, I think, on any issue without adding numerous assumptions okay, that have absolutely nothing to do with the basic value of the framework uh, in question. So uh, thank you for not throwing tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so even if we, but I mean, it doesn't really matter if you accept what I just argued, because even if it's completely false, okay, there's still the cherry picking problem. I know. Um, uh, the key uh, justification for the political criterion was the teachers, once again, have a mandate to promote liberal democratic values like justice, equality, and uh, individual liberty or negative freedom. According to this argument, substantive viewpoints that are consistent with these values must be taught about impartially. Teachers who don't teach about them this way fail to meet their professional obligation to promote and inculcate liberal democratic values amongst their students. So it sort of these values seem rather clearly more convincingly to you know, lead teachers towards a partial stance when teaching about controversial uh, or sensitive issues. Um, it seems to me, however, that this argument relies on a highly selective reading or cherry picks the basic values of the liberal democratic political order. Um, if we broaden our conception uh, of these values to include very plausibly, I think, such things as tolerance, intellectual freedom, freedom of conscience, pluralism, dialogue, rational autonomy, right? Um, then uh, these very same values, the very same values inculcation argument, I should say, could be used to justify the prioritization of actual, uh, in fact, impartiality when dealing with sensitive issues in class. Um, indeed, the research on teachers' perspectives on teaching about sensitive issues, uh, again, 
Olson and, and colleagues and Hess's work is particularly good on this. It suggests that the uh, th that such in fact precisely such values inculcation concerns may be behind teachers' preference for, for impartiality, even when it comes to issues that are widely considered to be closed and in relation to which certain positions are clearly opposed to key values like equality and security security of the person like 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 racism, uh, bullying. Teachers consistently, to be consistently shown that they, they still prefer to talk to their students about things like bullying, things like racism, I mean, impartially, right? Um, despite the fact that everybody agrees or should agree that these things are wrong, okay? And there are often school policies. There are school policies clearly now against both racism and bullying. Um, but uh, as mentioned, one of the reasons they, they what, to explain why they, to explain this apparent incoherence is because it demonstrates a commitment uh, 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 on their part to students' rights to make up their own minds, sort of rational autonomy, to have their own opinions, to tolerate the diversity of opinions in the classroom, and also the right for students, uh, students' right to uh, express their own opinions, so students' right to, to free speech. So from this uh, perspective, given the position of authority the teachers exercise in relation to students, a classroom in which the teacher is uh, clearly committed to a particular standpoint and is actively engaged in advocacy around the standpoint is not, according to these teachers, an environment that's conducive to students feeling free, uh, free to honestly uh, express their own opinions. Uh, it's not conducive to students being maximally informed about an issue because they don't look at all the evidence, only the evidence for. It's not conducive either to students coming to their own opinions because they are sort of being, you know, forced to adopt a certain view and are being exposed to uh, selective uh, arguments and considerations. So in sum, if we take a more uh, holistic, in my opinion, more accurate view of the liberal democratic values framework, values inculcation concerns, don't provide a conclusive justification for teacher for teacher partiality again because exactly the same values inculcation concerns it seems to me could be used to justify teaching impartiality uh, impartially sorry um, okay so let's say again for the sake of argument that I'm wrong about both the application problem and the values cherry picking problem and I may well be okay um, so let's grant that teachers have a duty to teach, impartial, uh, teach partially, sorry, about certain substantive viewpoints because they can be inferred with sufficient certainty from the basic values framework of the liberal democratic political order. Let's grant as well that there may be some compelling educational and political reasons that I just haven't taken into account here why the values of equality and individual liberty should be prioritized in educational settings so that teachers must ensure that students come to uh, accept certain substantive viewpoints as right or true, even though doing so might be out of step with teachers' professional obligations to promote tolerance, the creation of ethical diversity, and for respect for the right to free speech and intellectual freedom of their students. Um, indeed, uh, one of the things that makes the, uh, the ideal, uh, or the idea, I should say, of social justice, justice advocacy so compelling, again, in this specific context, for so many uh, educators and educationalists, including myself, I must say, is this nagging worry, okay, that two-sidedness is a victory for one side. So if you start, if a teacher, you know, talks about bullying and racism, you know, for 
and partially it sends the message that like it's okay to be a bully or you know it's okay to be racist so in this so i you get the idea, and then who, who, you know, what teacher would would want to do that? Um, nevertheless, the question I want to raise now is the extent to which uh, the advice to reject the cult of neutrality and engage in social justice advocacy in the context of teaching and learning about sensitive issues should be prior, should be considered, I should say, sound advice for teachers to take. And this brings us to the professional risk problem, uh, as mentioned. Uh, one of the reasons teachers cite time and time again to explain why they prefer neutral impartiality is because, professionally speaking, it's safer for them. Taking a stand on an issue, so committed teaching and promoting a particular viewpoint, partial teaching exposes teachers to considerable professional risk. Teachers know that parents and school leaders are highly sensitive to teacher disclosure in class. They know that if their position on a public issue runs counter to the cherished personal beliefs of parents or students, uh, or it risks tarnishing uh, the school's uh, public image, they could face reprimands and sanctions at work. Uh, teachers also know that it's very, very difficult uh, to predict uh, with any certainty which statements will attract negative attention and which statements will be met with indifference uh, in the school community. And these risks really worry teachers, uh, and they're especially concerning for teachers who are, who are new to the profession. Uh, in this context, it seems uh, entirely reasonable to me for a teacher to adhere to a stance of neutral impartiality when teaching about sensitive issues. Um, findings uh, from our own research uh, about uh, teachers' view on academic freedom confirms that pragmatic concerns around job security are a key driver of teacher decision-making around disclosure and impartiality, and they tend to push teachers towards neutral impartiality. So we did this uh, survey a couple of years ago of 175 US and Canadian teachers, and one of the, uh, one of the I think, most interesting results um, was uh, that uh, teachers' decision-making or the choice of methods when teaching about sensitive issues is mediated by two key factors. One, the degree to which an issue is considered to be sensitive in their school environment or in the community. And the second, whether or not a teacher has tenure. Um, in short, the more sensitive a teacher considers a topic to be, the more likely they will say they would teach it from a neutral and partial standpoint. Similarly, teachers who have more job security are more likely to say that they would teach about a sensitive issue in a committed way. Um, in some, regardless of how confident a teacher is that their own personal viewpoint on a sensitive issue uh, is the right one, and no matter how justified they might be okay, in promoting it amongst their students, disclosing their own viewpoint uh, on it in class and engaging in act advocacy about it is, uh, is risky. Uh, the choice to the choice of whether to engage in social justice advocacy should be uh, should be seen, it seems to me, as a highly personal choice, rather than some kind of moral imperative, because making because um, because making it making this decision to engage in partiality could have substantive negative uh, substantive substantial sorry negative impact on a teacher's career, and teachers and teachers are alone are the ones who have to live with these consequences, right? Um, it's also a highly personal choice insofar as the, the degree of risk individual teachers face 
is not generalizable at all, but sensitive contextual factors. Again, uh, they're unique to their employment situation. Um, how controversial is the issue among students, staff, uh, parents? Uh, how much job security did they have? Uh, and finally, uh, research has also shown this stuff that their employer, usually the uh, school principal or director's uh, own past record of supporting and defending teachers who engage in, in advocacy in the classroom is, a, is, is something that many teachers are highly aware of and will determine uh, the decision-making in this area. So a failure to consider the risk teachers potentially face when they engage in social justice advocacy demonstrates it seems to be a lack of sensitivity, a real lack of sensitivity about how vulnerable teachers are to the vagaries of students' reactions to personal opinion and to principals' managerial choices. Okay, last part of the paper now. Um, I'm going to draw on some recent work I've been doing on dealing with religious content in secular public schools to suggest that committed partiality or advocacy is a, a potential threat to two basic rights. The right to freedom of conscience and the right uh, to parental oversight regarding children's religion, uh, religious and moral education. Um, one hardly needs to be reminded, of course, that the right to freedom of religion and conscience is guaranteed by Section 2A of the Canadian Charter. It's also protected by various provincial human rights codes, Ontario's Human Rights Code, Quebec's Charter of Rights and Freedoms, as well as Article 18.1 of the International Covenant on uh, Civil and Political Rights. For its part, the right to parental oversight regarding children's uh, religious and moral education is protected by Article 14 of the same document, the ICCPR. And uh, this, uh, this section of this article reads, uh, the state's parties to the present covenant undertake to have respect for the liberty of parents and when applicable legal guardians to ensure that the religious and moral education of their children uh, in conformity with their own convictions. Um, in the Canadian jurisprudence, I realize this is a controversial right. Um, it is usually, it's often used by um, people on the right of the political spectrum uh, to um, essentially muzzle um, uh, the expression of liberal left-leaning views in, in Canadian public schools. But there is a, there is a significant jurisprudence on, on, on the matter uh, that does clarify the relationship between freedom of religion and conscience and this parental right to educational oversight. Um, it's, it's seen as, this right to parental, parental educational oversight is seen uh, in high court, uh, in the high court jurisprudence as following from, uh, but also subject to conditions, uh, the right to freedom of conscience and religion. So as just, Justice uh, Gontier of the Supreme Court of Canada remarked in the well-known Chamberlain uh, ruling from 2000, or was it 2002, that some of you might be familiar with, um, Parental decision-making about what is in their children's, quote, best interests, uh, um, uh, parental decision-making about what is in their children's best interests concerns the core of the private sphere. In BR, another, another previous uh, case, Justice Laforet, for majority of the court, clearly situated the right of, of parents to rear their children according to their own, to their conscience, uh, religious or otherwise, as a fundamental aspect of freedom of conscience and religion protected by charter or section 2a of the charter. Um, 
That said, uh, in the Canadian legal context, this right to parental education oversight has a specific and important limitation. Um, in particular, it can't be uh, it can't be used to muzzle teachers or impose cur curricular restrictions that would disallow presenting ideas in class that are not compatible with parents' religious views. Um, when those views when those views run counter to the right to equality and other rights guaranteed by the Charter. So there's a, there's a significant jurisprudence on this. There's the E.T. versus Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board case. Um, there's this Commission Scolaire des Chênes, Chamberlain again, uh, the Supreme Court of Canada and uh, the Superior, Superior Court of Ontario have, have reiterated this, uh, this, this condition on, um, uh, on the right to parental oversight multiple times. But to, to illustrate, I'll give you, uh, I'll give the ET versus Hamilton Wentworth District School Board case as one quick example. Um, some of you, since it's an Ontario case, some of you may be familiar. Anyone familiar with this case? Then you are. Hmm? Yeah, but I couldn't describe it. Okay, okay. Um, well, then maybe this will ring a few bells, the description, okay. Um, so in this case, the appellant ET, father of Greek Orthodox confession, made a request for religious accommodation to have the children excluded from classrooms, uh, classrooms are in school discussions and activities that, that portrayed homosexual and bisexual contact, uh, conduct, interesting lapsus, in, relation, uh, in relationships and or transgenderism as natural and healthy. So this person's religious beliefs led them to oppose homosexuality, transgenderism, and asked the school to have his children removed from class whenever there were discussions of these issues. Uh, the case wended its way through the Ontario judi judicial system, uh, finally ending up with the Ontario uh, Superior Court, which just rejected ET's appeal. So in citing the Supreme Court of Canada precedents, the court argued that the father could not advance his re religious beliefs to, quote, insist that a non-denominational public school, so a secular public school, uh, board uh, structure its inclusive and integrated program designed to meet uh, its statutory uh, objective of ensuring a respectful and accepting climate for all children so that he can ensure that his own children are not exposed to any views that he does not accept. Okay, so again, wanted to get that out there. Um, note that this restriction, okay, is specifically a restriction on what teachers can teach, okay, the content that they can teach. But it doesn't say anything, at least in my reading and according to my familiarity with these jurisprudence, um, on how they can teach about such content, okay. Um, Now, time constraints don't allow me to, for even, for even a superficial review of the jurisprudence in this regard. So uh, suffice it to say that a number of Canadian, US, and European courts since the 1990s, including the Seminal Canadian Civil Liberties Association version, ver, uh, versus Ontario Minister of Education from Ontario case, um, converged towards some fairly straightforward guidelines on how to uh, how teachers must deal with uh, religious content in schools in order for such treatment to be consistent with students' right to religious freedom. So, simply put, these guidelines 
are that exposing young people to religious content in secular public schools is consistent with the charter right to, charter right to freedom of religion and conscience on these conditions. First, it has to be respectful. So it avoids promoting, it has to avoid promoting our religious beliefs and practices, but it also has to avoid denigrating them, belittling them, or putting them down. Uh, it has to be done using an objective pedagogical uh, approach. So it has to be descriptive and, fact, uh, and factual. Uh, third, uh, students must not be required to participate in religious ceremonies or other religious practices. And the third, or the fourth condition rather, is that if uh, students, uh, sorry, at schools, according to the jurisprudence, like have the option of doing all these things. I mean, there are schools in, for example, Turkey, uh, Norway, I think actually Norway put an end to its program, but for a long time, uh, Norway, Belgium today, uh, they all have um, confessional religious, uh, for, confessional forms of religious education in public schools, right? Um, so it's, 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 it's happened and it's in courts allow it to happen. Um, but if it is to happen, then, uh, then schools need to provide, uh, again, uh, practical, so easily navigable uh, opt-outs, and also opt-outs that uh, don't deny students basic right to equal education, or in any way stigmatize them. So you can't like send them to like the punishment room or whatever, so that they can't hear the religious lesson. It has to be, you know, a, a comparable, equal but different kind of educational experience they're offering them. Um, so I may, you know, I may be completely wrong about this, and I hope you'll correct me if I am. But I fail to see any significant difference between religious beliefs and beliefs about matters of conscience, such that these guidelines should not apply in the case of the latter as well. Um, to be sure, uh, school uh, state-sponsored educational institutions have an obligation to promote students' understanding and endorsement of charter rights, uh, freedoms, and values. At the same time, however, students as public institutions, so as part of the state apparatus exercising state power, are also required to respect the full range of charter rights, freedoms, and values, including the right to freedom of conscience. So from this perspective, schools and the representative teachers and school officials would also seem to have a duty of reserve regarding matters of religion and conscience. In the case of religious commitments, the courts have uh, consistently found that teacher advocacy violates students and their families' right to religious freedom for two main reasons. One, it constitutes a coercive influence over students. And second, it's incompatible with the duty uh, to state neutrality with regard to religion. In the case of mandatory uh, participation in religious ceremonies, rituals, or practices, such participation violates uh, uh, religious freedom because such, such activities constitute forced religious practice by state actors. Now, a quick aside here, I will allow myself a quick aside. Um, some of you may have heard of, you all have heard of smudging ceremonies in schools, right? Um, and you may, but you may not have heard of the Cervasius case uh, heard by, I think, the BC Court of Appeal or Supreme Court uh, about two years ago. It was, a, it was specifically about a smudging ceremony that was held in a BC school. And a parent, um, a, a Christian parent, objected to their student, their, her children, participating in the smudging ceremony on the grounds that, um, on the grounds that it violated her uh, right to religious freedom. Um, now, as you can imagine, here's the, here's like the mini quiz or whatever. Okay, like, <laughs> what's the key issue here? What's the key issue? The key issue and the key issue for the court was, is uh, an indigenous smudging ceremony a religious ceremony? Okay, 
And interestingly, okay, what the court did was that it turned back to the, 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 the precedent, okay, established in Amsalem, okay, on how you define, like, what a religious obligation is. Now, the application's imperfect, but this is a, the, kind of another story. But basically, the Amsalem uh, precedent says that, look, we don't call in experts to find out what a person thinks is their religious obligations, okay? In any religion, there's diversity of views, especially Judaism, it's incredibly di internally diverse religion, which is what was at issue in Amsterdam. So we'll just say, look, look, if, we, if we're satisfied, if the court is satisfied that these, you know, people claim they have a, you know, sincerely claim to have a religious obligation, that's good enough for us, okay? So it's a very subjective, uh, very subjective standard of, 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 um, of um, religious obligation. So they applied, the, the court applied the same standard in. Or really, am I getting short on time? Okay, in in Cervasius, and they and they came to the conclusion that smudging was not a religious ceremony, but rather a cultural practice. Okay, I'm on my last uh, couple of pages. Okay, <clears throat> um, okay. So to to be sure, uh, freedom of conscience has been given much less consideration by the courts than freedom of religion. Uh, broadly speaking, the Canadian Higher Court jurisprudence suggests that while freedom of religion. Um, and conscience should not be considered to be tautologist. This is the term used in the 1988 Morgenthaler judgment. I think they meant synonymous, but they used tautologist. Um, uh, freedom of conscience is the freedom to hold and manifest whatever beliefs and opinions that conscience dictates. So this is from the, the RV Big M Drug Mart 1985 case. On the condition that such beliefs uh, and, and opinions are sincerely held. Again, from Anselm. Um, um, so it's, it's just such, such beliefs, sincerely held views related to, views dictated by conscience that the charter protects against invasion by the government and its agents. So given this characterization of freedom of conscience and considering the specific protections against invasion afforded by the courts for religious freedom in the context of public schools, it does not seem to me far-fetched uh, at all, that essentially the same protection should be afforded to freedom of conscience in schools. That's to say, in relation to teaching and, uh, about or discussing matters of conscience with students, um, there should be teachers should um, avoid promoting or denigrating specific viewpoints. Uh, they should adhere to a, an impartial, uh, that's to say, descriptive or objective uh, pedagogical approach, one that focuses focus on facts and arguments. Uh, they should avoid uh, prohibiting or discouraging students to participate in political activities, demonstrations, activism, lobbying. Uh, and there should not be, uh, there should definitely not be mandatory participation in political activities, demonstrations, again, activism, lobbying. And uh, just like the paralleling the, the standard from religious content, you know, schools can be can engaged in these kinds of things, okay, fine, but if they do, then they have to put in place a system of practical, non-stigmatizing uh, opt-outs. So does this mean that teachers can't challenge their students' beliefs or provide arguments in favor of one point of, point of view or another? Of course not. Okay? If they did that, they would, be not, they would not be doing the job. But what it does mean is that when teachers teach about or discuss matters of conscience with their students, the right uh, to freedom of conscience requires them to be partial in the sense of avoiding the use of their position of authority invested in them by the state to promote one particular viewpoint. It also requires them to be respectful of their student, student views, no matter how kooky or irrational those views may seem uh, to the teacher. 
Now I realize that uh, what I'm saying here is going to be controversial and as to be honest, as a liberal minded person myself, I'm not sure whether I like this conclusion at all. But it does represent my most intellectually honest reading of the jurisprudence on teaching about religious content in schools and its application uh, to the issue of teaching about matters of conscience in the context of teaching and learning about sensitive issues. So I am going to wrap things up here by attempting to square the circle if I have a time. Please say I have time. Okay, how long is, is it? Okay. We go to six. Okay, okay. Um, okay, okay. Let's see. Um, um, okay, I'm so sorry. I was bragging about how great I was becoming about time. Um, <clears throat> okay, so I'm going to just finish by quickly, I'm going to wrap it up as quickly as possible uh, by making some tentative suggestions about how to deal with the sensitive issues in a way that eases the tension between these two professional obligations that generate the problem I've have given rise to this paper. So the duty to be neutral and partial in teaching, teaching about sensitive issues and the duty to promote social justice and inculcate uh, liberal democratic values among students. Um, okay, so let's see. Um, I'm gonna just finish with this here, okay? I, I see this, this again uh, draws on some previous work that um, I did with my dear colleague, Sivan Hirsch on, uh, on on, on religious education. Um, the, the problem that we were looking at was, you know, in Quebec there's this mandatory religious education program, okay? So teachers, actually the, the government just canceled it, but until recently there was mandatory religious education in Quebec public schools. So teachers are required to talk about religions with their students. At the same time, they're also required, it's very clear, to be impartial. They're not supposed to be judgy. They're not supposed to criticize you know, uh, uh, religious beliefs and practices. So many, many teachers, I used to teach teachers, future teachers, and I worked with in-service teachers about this, there's this concern, okay, that like how can they, is being impartial about, you know, you, there's not a single you know, religion out there, a major world religion that doesn't have within it, you know, very illiberal, you know, very illiberal uh, beliefs and practices, right? And so they ask, well, how can I possibly be, you know, neutral with regard to these, these beliefs and practices? Shouldn't I call them out and tell my students I think they're wrong? So I think you can see the parallel here, right? You can see the parallel here. Um, um, so we we looked at looking thinking through this and, and thinking about the so-called cultural approach to religious education. There are nevertheless like openings. Okay, there are openings where the teacher can sort of. The, the teacher can lead students to an appreciation of liberal democratic values while at the same time remaining descriptive. So these openings are, you know, correct faulty reasoning about uh, about empirical beliefs. Uh, insist on uh, now. I'm, I'm talking about the case of I'm talking about the case of sensitive issues that don't necessarily have religious content. Okay, so we're just applying the framework to the case of um, of, of sensitive issues. So teachers can still Okay, this is how you can sort of promote liberal values while remaining neutral, or, or I should say impartial. A correct faulty reasoning and accurate beliefs. Completely descriptive, right? Insist on inclusive and respectful dialogue. Point out tensions be between particular views and basic uh, liberal democratic values. And draw attention to cases where certain beliefs are opposed to uh, existing law-inspired violence. Paper, <clears throat> very, very, very 
important, compelling idea. So I have an example to illustrate, but I am going to skip that and just conclude by uh, paraphrasing a comment made in the Supreme Court of Canada's ruling in the matter of Monroe High School. So in response to the Applin's argument that Catholic teachers, uh, the, that asking Catholic teachers to teach about other religions in an impartial, non-dogmatic way, which is an issue in this case, uh, as Quebec's mandatory religious education was asking them to do, was unreasonable. So in response to this, uh, this claim on the part of the Applin's, Justice Abella eloquently po pointed out that impartial teaching is really nothing exceptional, nothing new, and doesn't require teachers to leave their own personal beliefs at the schoolhouse gate. It is simply um, a pedagogical tool used by good teachers for centuries to let the information and not the personal views of the teacher guide the discussion. Thanks. So sorry for that. <laughs>